Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. To course over better waters, little bark of my wit now lifts her sails, leaving behind her so cruel a sea. And I will sing of that second kingdom where the human spirit is purged and becomes fit to ascend. But here, let poetry rise again from the dead. O oh, holy muses, since I am yours, and here, let Calliope rise up for a while and accompany my song with that strain that smote the ears of the wretched pies so that they are despaired of pardon. In the first canto of Purgatorio, Dante emerges from the cone of the inferno to see light for the first time. It's the moment where hope returns and there is music and poetry again. He calls upon the muse of poetry, Calliope, and the Calliope fresh pearl water necklace takes its inspiration from this moment with jiggity jaggedy imperfect pearls representing the fact that hope is always on the horizon. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that today my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the world-renowned British artist Cornelia Parker. Working in a variety of mediums since the mid-1980s, Cornelia Parker is known for her inventive, poetic and quietly provocative works in sculpture, photography, performance, prints and large-scale and often site-specific installations. Having studied at Gloucestershire College of Art and Design and at Wolverhampton Polytechnic before receiving her MA in Fine Art from the University of Reading in 1982, Cornelia Parker has since gone on to capture audiences from around the world, shifting our idea of what art can be and exploring every possible potential of materials. Shortlisted for the Turner Prize in 1997, made an OBE and a Royal Academy edition in 2010, as well as serving as the country's election artist in 2017, more on that later, Parker has exhibited all over the world, including the likes of the Met in New York, London's Hayward Gallery, Manchester's Whitworth Gallery, Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art, as well as featuring in collections worldwide from the Tate, Royal Academy, Pompidou and MoMA. 
Cornelia Parker's art is about destruction, resurrection and reconfiguration. Demonstrating the importance of process, she frequently transforms objects by using seemingly violent techniques such as shooting, exploding, squashing, cutting and burning. And it is through these actions that she both physically alters the object as well as becoming an active development of its story herself. Cornelia Parker, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? <laughs> Thank you. It's a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm very well. <laughs> Virus considering. <laughs> so your work has been something I've been lucky enough to witness at many points in my life. And I'm always fascinated by the range of unconventional materials that you use, whether it be a blown up garden shed or a room full of over 300,000 negatives of paper poppies. But I want to get to those incredible sculptural installations later on. But I'd first just love to start off with your beginnings as an artist and in life. You were born in 1956 in Cheshire in the north of England. Tell me about your early years. Were you surrounded by art at all as a child? Oh, no, it's very working class. I mean, art wasn't on the agenda at all. You know, I never went to see an exhibition with my family. So I was kind of, you know, Philistine, really, until I was about 15. And I went to London with two art teachers. And I was doing O-level art, that's what it was. And then I was going to do my A-level as well. So they asked me to come on this field trip, you know, to, to London to look at the galleries. And that was the first time I'd been to museums. It was just such an important week, you know, in my life that, that, that all this stuff and just look at all these wonderful paintings. So I think I decided I wanted to go to art school and I didn't know if I was good enough to be like a proper fine artist. But in the end, I didn't. I did fine art and it was good. You know, very lucky to be doing it, I think. My eldest had gone to college, she studied music, and then I was going to go and study art. I can't understand where music and art came from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't particularly educated, you know. But in fact, one of the teachers at school said about me, oh, I think she's, uh, art school's most probably the only thing she could do. <laughs> <laughs> so that was good. I can imagine good. you had quite a wild imagination. Yeah, I was very shy then, I was very shy. So if my wild imagination was a bit more covert, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and so you studied at Wolverhampton Polytechnic and then got your MFA from Reading in 1982. What were these places like in the 80s? I mean, were people still focusing on quite traditional art forms at that time? Wolverhampton was great because it was a very progressive art school. And it had a big performance art space. It was just... I think a very interesting art school and in a very ugly city, you know, Wolverhampton was very ugly. <laughs> uh, but I really loved being there. I thought it was great. And Reading University, I didn't like so much. I had a residency in between my BA and my MA. I had did a residency in a college in Cheshire, which is very close to where I was brought up, actually. And it had a creative arts degree. So that means a lot of the students there were doing dance and drama or they were doing English and sculpture. And I've still got three or four friends from those days. So it was a really exciting time for me. I mean, I made sets for Waiting for God, you know, choreography. And, yeah. and, you know, it was just very liberal. Yeah. And then when I went off to Reading, I just felt it was all a bit much more fusty and um, not exciting. I mean, we have two painters who are my tutors. Terry Frost, do you know Terry oh, Frost? Oh, yes. Was he a, an assistant of Barbara Hepworth? Was he? Oh, he might well have been because he, he, was. Was, he, lived, he lived in Cornwall. Yeah. I think he was one of her assistants in the later part of her life. 
Right, right, right. He was a working class lad who had been in the army in the war. He'd been in a prison of war camp. Oh, well, after that, I moved to London. That was the biggest thing for me. Very exciting time, making work at home. So I suddenly, you know, let my hair down. So I was not working in an artistic environment. You know, to me, like a studio with white walls and concrete floor. I was working at home, you know, in quite restrictive... I mean, I'm working at home still. And then when was it that you became interested in working with sculptural installation? Because your work then and still is, I mean, like nothing I've ever even seen before. Oh, I'm not sure. It was when I started using materials that were found. Before that, I'd made things in plaster, a little bit Rachel white dish casting underneath spaces and all the rest of it. It was Bruce Nelman I was looking at. But I worked in lead. I made some lead cathedrals. And they were Empire State buildings and famous monuments. And they were like Sydney fires or whatever. And then Dear Silver being a bit like a monument for your weddings, anniversaries, all the rest of it. So it was sort of on a domestic scale. They were domestic monuments. So I was interested in the monumental in terms of 30 pieces of silver, you know, my titles. They were found objects too. That's a biblical found object. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm really interested in this idea of turning found objects into sculptural installations. I mean, there seems to be always so many elements of destruction, uncertainness and suspense with your work. I mean, why is it that you like to use such a range of materials and mediums to express these ideas in your work? I think I'm just kind of restless, you know. I, I feel I have to reinvent the wheel every time I make a new piece of work, which is not exactly the best way to go around making art because it's <laughs> very labour-intensive because you can never, never really become an expert at anything. Mind you, the only thing I might have become expert is squashing. <laughs> I've been squashing in all kinds of ways for some time now, but it's always satisfying to me, the squashing. (laughs) That's what's so weird that all these processes, somehow things being intact is not what I want at all. I'm much more into the thing when it's fragmented. Like, for example, a piece did a few years ago called Sawn Up, Sawn Off Shotgun, which was a shotgun that had been sawn off by criminals (laughs) confiscated by the police and then they were going to give it to me so I could make a work of art out of it and they chopped it up into tiny bits and I said wow this is great (laughs) so I called it sawn up sawn off shotgun a collaboration between criminals and the police (laughs) and me of course (laughs) yeah absolutely that's so funny I mean so much of your work is about collecting together objects or resurrecting them to create a new meaning and conversation in other words transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary. I mean, why are you interested in taking an object that is supposedly mundane and transforming it into something else? I think what I'm doing is taking something that's very familiar Mm. to people, usually a shotgun might be, or a garden shed might be, and then in a way by exploding it or changing its physiognomy makes it more porous and more open to meaning. And I'm very interested when something's just about lost its identity. And then when it's liberated from its identity, then it can be reinterpreted and be something very different. Mm. And I like using found objects just because I suppose I'm a bit of a (laughs) pop artist. (laughs) You know, I like something that's very cliched or something that's become so well-worn by it being part of our lives for a long time. And then you tweak it and you rejig it and it's suddenly got new space in it. So like a ball of string, for example, I used a string to wrap up Rodan's The Kiss. Yes. And then I called it, instead of The Kiss, I called it The Distance, (laughs) the opposite of The Kiss, and then in brackets, A Kiss With String Attached. 
And then from the Stuckists, who are a group of artists who don't believe in the 20th century or 21st century way of making art, they're still stuck in the dark ages. They did a, a protest event around my kiss and they cut off the string. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I was very, I was, you know, suitably cheesed off. Um, did you keep it that way? No, no, what I did was I tied the string back together and put it back on. <laughs> And then, because this piece of string had sort of gathered so much notoriety, or the Tate wanted to prosecute the, the guy who cut my string right, for vandalism, and but the police said, "We, we I don't think we'll go, if we go to court, I don't think they'll, they'll laugh us out of court because it's a piece of string. <laughs> it's not, it's not marble, you know, it's a piece of string. And so for them, a piece of string was worthless. But then I took the string, wrapped it round an object that was a weapon." Yeah. So I wrapped it around a mystery object which nobody sees, and I called it the distance and then brackets uh, with hidden weapon. <laughs> <laughs> and so it got all this history of the, whatever had happened to it. Yeah. It was even on news at ten. <laughs> the bongs they used to do. The Big Ben was bonging, and then they said, "Oh, you know, works, you know, vandalized at the tape, blah blah blah." So I thought it was very funny. I mean, I was really pleased at the guy who chopped off the string. I think he was hoping to become notorious, fame by association with his act. <laughs> I noticed on Wikipedia his name came up on my page, but I got rid of him. <laughs> More of a performance artist than a criminal. And so what? drew you to something like Rodin's The Kiss? Was it about taking something so famous and so iconic and breaking with traditions? I think with The Kiss, I think I was attracted to it because it's the most famous sculpture in Britain. And it's got a kiss and it's it's all about romantic love. But really, Rodin's The Kiss was part of a much more dark tableau. It was part of the gates of hell. Yeah, And it's about this couple who, but they ended up being murdered by the wife of the woman in the kiss. So there's all this very dark subtext, which the statue on its own hadn't got, you know. I really like the idea of giving it a bit more sort of mystery. And everybody can visualise the kiss. Yeah, People were outraged that I wrapped the kiss up. But <laughs> when it was first shown in early 1900s, it was put under wraps because people didn't like it. They thought it was too lewd. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Two years under wraps because the, the general public couldn't cope with the erotic qualities it had. So I quite like this idea of reinstating the covering, except for the you know, and Duchamp, as you know, is well, he's a big hero of mine. Yeah. He was into the non-retinal. He was into more conceptual stuff and the father of conceptual art, I suppose. But I like the idea of the string being the concept. So I enjoyed those little stories. And so I was using the kiss as a cliche. Yeah. <laughs> and then the fallout was reasonable. And that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, taking concepts of traditional sculpture and transforming it into something new. One of my favourite works of yours ever is Cold Dark Matter. And for those listeners who have not yet witnessed this incredible installation, which I will link to in the show notes, it is essentially the restored contents of an exploded garden shed, which make up a giant installation suspended from the ceiling as if held mid-explosion. And it's incredible. It's almost quite silent and muted. And it's lit by a single light bulb source so it's really dramatic when you enter the room and from the shadows it creates all these different shapes all these different objects i mean how do you want the viewer to feel or react 
to your explosive-like work surrounded by fragments and lost items? Well, I think because they're frozen in space and time, that they're allowing people to meditate on them because it's the explosion's been and gone, it's um, hit the ground, all the objects, and now they're back in the air again. And it's just it's like an arrested thing. You yeah. know? So you're arresting the arson church being burnt. And it can be very quiet and, and very contemplative. And you can contemplate it all rather than have to experience something in a split second and then that's it. So I like people spending time with it or with the shadows. The shadows on the wall are like the explosion and then you are standing in between the wall and the shed. So it's got its own drama to it. I mean, when I first did the shed, I didn't know it was going to be so dramatic. You know, I thought it might have a few shadows, but it really was much more dramatic than I thought it was going to be, which was fine. It was great, but you can't always predict. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, the work almost turns into all these different strands of sculpture because you have the dramatic shadows, but then the actual hanging sculpture is made up of so many peculiar items. Well, I think all the objects in it are quite interesting because they're little time capsules because they were things from other people's garden sheds. And so some of them are quite old anyway, you know, they've already got a history. And then there was a, there was a can of Coke in there that was actually drunk up the day of the explosion by one of the soldiers. <laughs> 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 so it's nice. I mean, and there's a whole load of hair curlers, which I really like. <laughs> so it's good. I mean, over the years, it's been put up and down several times. It's, it used to be a lot of black because of the soot in the explosion. But it's become less less sooty. <laughs> That's interesting then, then more things are going to be revealed as the years go on. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. I mean, there's bits in there that I'm not, I'm still looking for the bike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm looking for the bike, the handlebars. I think I've seen the handlebars, but that's about it. I mean, it's funny, some of these things just got lost, you know. They must be got blown right over the hedge or something. <laughs> <laughs> But the major who blew up my shed for me, I kind of kept in touch with over the years. I feel like you come into contact with all these people who don't necessarily always work with artists. I know. I quite like that. And I've done the Embryo Firearms, which was in the Colt Firearms Factory in Connecticut. And I was in an exhibition in Connecticut. So the guys I was working with were shooting pearl necklaces into a, a suit and money into a dress and polishing my truncated firearms, you know, Colt 45 guns at the earliest stage of production. <laughs> and they were National Rifle Association. But we had quite a laugh and they came to my opening and, and it was really <laughs> hilarious. You know, I liked it. You know, they would have all these people who, you know, obviously have polar opposite sort of political viewpoints. <laughs> yeah, I think that's always interesting. But I mean, so much of your work is always exploring the absolute potential and limit of a material. Why are you interested in pushing everything to the limit? I don't know. I think it's all <laughs> part of the process is, I mean, I perhaps push things to the limits. I don't think I actually do it in real life. <laughs> <laughs> you do it in a very still and sort of contained way. Yeah, I mean, I like the extremes of anything. Yeah. You know, I worked with Kostya Novoselov, this Nobel Prize winning physicist in yeah. Manchester. He and his partner discovered graphene. And graphene is, you know, like that extreme thing. It's a one atom thick layer of graphite and it's a nano thing. And I just thought, well, the nano is just as exciting as the explosion in the universe. I really like that idea that if you unlock what the nano will do, you, there's all these other worlds in there 
actually quite extraordinary what this material could do and other 2D materials as well so I don't know it's just something that I have to do <laughs> and I think I like to have a good nosy Parker bit <laughs> <laughs> For example, years ago, I did a project with the Bronte Museum up in Howarth, and I invited two mediums to the house to read the house to see if they can get in contact with the Brontes. (laughs) And uh, the Brontes are not supposed to have any children. But Branwell, who was quite an alcoholic drug taker, yeah. there was a possibility that he did because he was sowing his wild oats left, right and centre. So when I was there, I was looking through the files at all these people who say that they're related to the Brontes. And there was only one credible person. She and her husband, when they retired, they got into genealogy. I mean, she's an academic who was a teacher. And she said she knew that she had a great-great-grandmother who knew Charlotte Bronte. So she went doing research about her and she found that this woman, the great-great-grandmother, was out of a a sort of romance. The butcher's wife (laughs) had had this child that was obviously not her husband's. And the child had long red hair and actually had an amazing profile, which was very similar to Branwell's. So I got these two mediums into the house to see if I could... I didn't tell them why they were there, but I was trying to find out if there was a living person who related to the Brontes. So I asked them at one point as they go around the house, so is there any living members of the Bronte family? I said, oh, yes, yes, there are. I said, oh. And, and I said, well, was it a boy or a girl? You know, and they said, oh, no, girl, girl. You know, both said girl. And then one of them said, yeah, she's got long red hair. <laughs> you know, it was just extraordinary. I mean, I don't know if they were reading my mind or what, but I didn't mention anything about the you know the stuff that I'd unearthed. And they were very convincing that there would be members of Branwell's wild oats around. Yeah. And Phyllis, the lady who's 90, she lived in Plymouth, and she gave me all these photographs of her different relatives, and one of them was her niece. And anyway, she came up to my opening and her husband, and the people who worked at the Bronte Museum and the head of the Bronte Society, they actually were really convinced by her. She was very imperious and very sort of assured that she was. And then the only way to find out if she was was to dig up the Brontes. <laughs> no, well, we, obviously we didn't dig up the Brontes, but but I thought it could be done through hair, you know, through DNA, but they couldn't do it to do with crossing the gender divide. But you know, we'll never know. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. But I want to talk to you about your print work as well, because you have an upcoming print exhibition with Alan Christea, and I'm fascinated by your prints and printmaking technique, because in a way, they are similar to your sculptures in the sense that they are all these found objects, but they are sometimes flowers, glasses, broken glasses, shattered objects, all kind of suspended in midair, which, like your other work, creates this tension and suspension. They're absolutely beautiful. For those who haven't seen them, they're almost kind of quite gothic-like. They're absolutely stunning. I mean, can you tell us about the upcoming print show that you're going to be doing? I'm just about, well, I was just about to do a show of prints at the Alan Christea. And the show was going to be called Through a Glass Darkly. 
Why did you title it that? Well, it is through a glass. A lot of the work's made with glass. I made a print show a few years ago called A One Day's Glass Will Break. So this is called A Through a Glass Darkly. And that comes from the Bible, from Corinthians. So it's another found title. And so I've done all the prints already. But I think printmaking's great because it's very sculptural. Well, I use Photogravure, which is Fox Tolbert, the inventor of photography and the photographic negative. He developed photographier. And so I kind of love it. I think it's a great medium. And I can create something very extraordinary with it, I think. Because I think when I showed my prints a few years ago, that they, you know, Alan Costello took them to uh, an art fair in Chicago, was it? And it was like a printmaker's fair. And there was queues around the booth of people wanting to look at the work and find out how it was done. Yeah. Because I just come up with this different technique just because I didn't know the rules. So I think that's a lot of my work is because I don't know the rules, I just make some rules up. (laughs) (laughs) And I I don't know what's happening with the prints because um, it's trial and error. I'm trying something and then, you know, it produces results that are... So which prints have you seen? I've seen the ones that you've got for the show. So I've seen Here and There oh, and Black wow. Bouquet, oh, wow. Snap, Salts. I think they're from a darker perspective. They're quite moody. I mean, I'm a bit worried about some of them because they're upside down flowers and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people want to buy upside down flowers. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I am still, there's quite a lot of trompe l'oeil. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of illusions going on. But I think the objects all look like they've got a lot of depth, which is what I really like about it. You've got something that's three-dimensional, but it's become, had another dimension somehow through the print. And the one you saw here and there, you know, and then, the reason they call them that, because one, it's a plate, it's a plate with a negative image on it of a coffee pot or something, and then I put a, a real object on top of it, which is a jug. And so you get the jug and the, you get the coffee pot and they, you know, one's an image or something, the other one's a real thing. Yeah. So it's 2D and 3D, you know. So that was nice, just to play around with that. Or coffee pot hit by a monkey wrench. <laughs> 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 then I've got the plate that's all smashed up and I've repaired it with sellotape. And then I called it <laughs> coffee pot hit by a monkey wrench and then brackets repaired. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not really a coffee pot, it's an image of a coffee pot. So then when you're actually making them, what is the actual process? Well, I've got a plate that I've smashed up with a monkey wrench. <laughs> then this is at the printmaking place. And then I get some sellotape and, you know, get the thing out of the glassine bag. That's, it, was, it, was a, became, it wasn't a print in that bag. So I just took it a bit further and then I started to repair it. And years ago, when I did this other show, I did one day this glass will break, which is a stack of glasses. Yes. And then the next one was the, the glasses falling all over the place and called I Told You So, you know. <laughs> and this is the idea of trying to repair this very premeditated act of violence of mine, which was to smash something with a monkey wrench. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also very delicate, beautiful glass negative. Yeah. The actual glass negative. But it's got this tragic comedy in it, which I really like. <laughs> it's so interesting because they feel like something of the past or something. There's this real kind of historic feel to them, I guess, that you have with the silver that you use in the, the table settings as well. Yeah. I mean, the photographic... Well, I had all these photographic negatives in glassine bags, and they, they were photographed in 1962, 
and I bought these negatives on the street market. But the actual objects are, some of them are Cromwellian, or they're several hundred years old. Wow. So, I mean, these are all silver objects, and I couldn't really afford all the silver objects. I, <laughs> I just enjoyed <laughs> the pictures. Yeah. yeah. So in a way, it's quite fun, you know, that I, I get to um, play with these beautiful old things, which are... You know, captured in the 60s and then recreated in the 2000s or whatever. And then it's got forget-me-nots and forget-me. <laughs> so I've done two. I've done forget-me-nots and then I've oh, forget-me. Yes. That one's squashed and this one isn't. But they're so interesting because what I love about your work, such as 30 pieces of silver, and for the listeners not familiar with this work, 30 pieces of silver comprises of over a thousand flattened silver objects from plates, spoons, candlesticks, trombones, which were all ceremoniously crushed by a steamroller and then transformed into arrangements which are suspended about a foot from the floor by hundreds of fine wires. But what I love about your sculptures and your prints is that they almost appear like shadows or a negative of something else because they are these flattened silhouettes. Yeah, so I think there's a lot more shadows in this show than there was in the show in One Day's Glass or Break show. I was shining light through the top of things and this I'm shining light through the sides of the things. So they have a very different feel to them. That's what I like about it. I like, you know, because they are very three-dimensional. The little one called Snap, you know, it's just a little, a little broken glass. It's, but I really love it. It's got this personality, which I didn't know where it came from. <laughs> but also it feels like it's falling or something. There's a kind of suspension yeah. to it and uncertainty well, to it. Well, that's what I like. That's what I'm trying to get in the prints is that, because that's what I get in the sculpture, that uncertain suspension. Yeah, absolutely. And with Breathless and 30 Pieces of Silver, I mean, how did these sculptural versions of the prints almost come about? Why is it that you want to squash all of these brass instruments? Doing the, the Breathless piece, which is the same age as my daughter, because I was nine months pregnant when I made that piece of work, it restarted me off on squashing. But squashing not in, you know, the steamroller sense of the word squashing, but really squashing. <laughs> 250 ton press squashing. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really good. That was really nice to, you know, give them permission to go off. Then I had to buy objects which were much better condition than the ones I used in the 30 pieces of silver. Because they have to withstand more weight, you know, more stress. I've got lines of objects that I've made that's suspended, a bit like endless columns, but endless sugar, endless cream. I think I've single-handedly rid all the affairs from, of, of this work, the silver. Why is it that you kind of love to have this endless quality to all the artworks? Well, I like it being endless because one thing leads to another. But also I was thinking of Endless Column by Rancuzzi. So sometimes I borrow titles from other of artworks. <laughs> so this idea that endless, in terms of um, Brancusi, it was all to do with wood and, you know, to do with all the sculptural materials, and I was making it out of Victorian coffee pots. <laughs> and it's so funny, actually, there's a show on the Tate Modern, and it's got one object of mine that they own, and it's an object that's been thrown off a white cliff to Dover. Oh, yeah. And there's a teapot. And it's so funny because it's on this plinth. It's just so pitiful, you know. <laughs> and, but I'm giving it a narrative. So that's really what I'm perhaps interested in is narratives. And then there's my piece I did on the Psycho Barn piece. Yes. Which is not dissimilar, taking something that's very well known, very people recognise it as a trope. 
and then the red barn also being more of a ubiquitous thing about wholesome America. Yeah. So that was very exciting to do. Every year they have a different artist make work for the roof for the summer project. So I was invited to do one and I went along and thought, wow, this is the best <laughs> in the world to make a piece of sculpture for. <laughs> you know? It really is. Wow. I know, it was fantastic. So you know, it was a really great thing. I mean, on the top of the Met, it was fantastic because the Met's full of all this stuff, you know, all this culture from all over the world. No, and it was great. The idea to have some British Hitchcock and some American Hopper sort of yeah. dialogue. And, you know, that's what the sets are like in Hollywood, you know, they're all shored up. A friend of mine, she's a production designer on films, and she got loads of photographs of different you know, film sets propped up. But in the Hitchcock house, didn't have an inside. It was all propped up from behind, exactly the same way I'd done it. How do you think it was different being in the Met as opposed to the RA? I think the Met, you've got the whole skyline of New York and some of them have been in famous films. Yeah. You know? So the park's got this great history. It used to be called, I think it was in the 30s, it was called Hooversville because oh. it was full of shanties of homes by all these people who were homeless to do with the recession and they called it Hooversville because Hoover was the Prime Minister at the time. And so it it was all this history. And also then you got sort of uh, New Amsterdam, which is what it's going to be called, because it's all these Dutch farmers had come over. So the so farmers would come with all their red barns and settle uh, Central Park and all the rest of it. In fact, there's a picture, I think, somewhere of the Met having a big red barn on its site. Wow. That's amazing. So, yes, that was great. I mean, the idea of it coming to the RA, it's almost like uh, Hitchcock coming home. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just had a very different scale to it. I quite like the idea of it in being a couple of different places. I thought at first that when I was in America that I was going to be torn to shreds by the critics of trying to make a comment about American psyche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily they didn't. <laughs> just after I finished that piece, I was making a film. It was on Halloween. And I was making this film about Halloween on the streets of New York, but also going outside Trump Tower same time and filming people there so the psycho bomb finished on halloween that was the last date and then trump got in a week later wow that's so interesting i mean so much of your work is so inherently political or has a political stance and i should mention in 2017 you were actually the election artist which is for those who don't know that when the speaker's advisory committee on works of art of the british house of commons chooses an official election artist to document the election campaigns in the united kingdom's general elections i mean why did you want to embark on the challenge of being the election artist in 2017 at such a prominent time in British politics? Well, I don't know. I think I was just so cheesed off with Trump, with Brexit, yep. with everything. Yep. I thought, well, I'm <laughs> absorbing all this stuff anyway. Why don't I just see if I can make peace with it, as it were? And so I did follow them every round on their journeys and, and made two films and filmed with a drone in the House of Commons but it, but, uh, called Left, Right and Centre. I quite liked having to be unbiased. You had to be unbiased, oh, wow. which was you know, quite a thing. But actually, I kind of quite liked it. I found it quite mischievous <laughs> and liberating. You can go whichever way you like. I mean, so I was doing left, right and centre all the time. And I did Instagram for the first time. I hadn't done social media before then. And that was quite fun. And I liked doing it. I still do it not as prolifically as I did before. I think everything becomes a political metaphor. 
Yeah. So I, I think it's really inventive. I still do that. I can't take my hat off, as it were. But Instagram is a bit like my artwork. It's all very all over the place. It's not super focused in one area. It's whatever takes my fancy, really. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Cornelia Parker. This was absolutely a fantastic insight into the work that you're making at the moment and the work that you have been making for over three decades now. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist, dead or alive, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh, hmm, Diana Arbus. Oh, yes, that's a good one. Why? I'm reading a book about it. Oh, no. <laughs> I just, just to think she was quite extraordinary and didn't live very long, so. Or Lee Miller. <gasps> yeah. I interviewed her granddaughter for the podcast a few months ago. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, lovely. Oh, oh no, she's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure she was a really funny one as well. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much, Cornelia. That's all right, dear. Thank you all so much for listening to the 39th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Cornelia Parker. If you want to explore more of Cornelia's incredible work, then I have linked them all in the show notes and you will also find information about her prints too. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Abamilla and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me. Katie Hessel.